0: This happened 36 years into my career. I thought I was bulletproof. Society has no idea what police officers and detectives and the men and women of the coroner or the medical examiner go through to find answers for family members. i would never been exposed to that much sadness in such a short period of time. And that's really how this journey into darkness uh, started. For probably the next hour and a half, She just sat and listened on her end while I told this story about the four girls that had passed away and what I was going through. And she said, congratulations, you have PTSD.
1: Welcome to Respond to Resilience, I'm David Dashinger. On this episode, we'll be talking about the heartbreak that happens when first responders can be involved in a call where children die. Our guest is Captain Patrick Wills. He's a veteran fire investigator who'll share his personal struggle with PTSD in the aftermath of this tragedy and how he made it back to the real world, right after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Responder Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Lumilly, LCSW EMTB. And I'd like to welcome our guest co-host for tonight, Kim O'Neill. Kim is a former city of Long Beach, California, police department and fire department employee. She served for eight years in the roles of crime analyst, Bureau Secretary and Psychology Office Assistant. Kim also hosts the Every Day is a New Day podcast and live show, and she's a three-time Amazon best selling author. And Kim launched the Let Your Shine movement in 2021. Kim, welcome to Respond to Resilience.
2: Thank you, David. I'm very happy to be here and honored to be part of this conversation. Thank you.
1: What's Bring on Pat and I'll have you uh, introduce him.
2: Yeah. So it is my honor to be part of this conversation today and introduce to you Patrick Wills. Patrick Wills is a 46 year fire service and law enforcement professional serving as captain and investigator with the Long Beach Fire Department, including 17 years as supervising investigator of the ATF arson unit. Pat was also involved in hundreds of arrests of adult and juvenile arson suspects, as well he's also testified in state and federal courts as an expert witness. His newly published book, The Reality of PTSD When Children Die, chronicles three core things, a tragic and preventable fire that claimed the lives of three young sisters, his personal struggle with such tragedy, and last but not least, how he made it back to the real world, thanks to a police psychologist who took the time to ask a very basic question. Welcome, Pat.
0: Hello. How's everybody doing today?
2: <laughs> Good. Great.
0: Great to have you, Pat. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
2: So, Pat, we're going to dive right into it. And before we get into the book and the story, let's first just explore a little bit more about your background. So will you share with everyone you know, more about your career in the fire service and law enforcement?
0: Sure. Well, uh, beginning as a little kid, I was uh, my my uncle actually was a uh, worked in the television industry. And he worked on a very famous police show called Adam 12. And my cousins and I and my brothers used to go to the set of Adam 12 every summer and we would hang out there. And our goal is to become police officers with the LAPD. Uh, My uncle got transferred to a show later on called Emergency uh, about the newly formed paramedic system in Los Angeles County. And I got to go to the set uh, one time and I had to call my cousins and say, I'm changing careers. And the rest was history. Uh, I became a fire explorer in Huntington Beach, California, Surf City, uh, where I started riding on the fire truck at 14 years old. And by the time I was 19, I was hired. I was being paid as a firefighter. Uh, In 1976, I became a firefighter with Orange County Fire Department here in Orange County, California, went up to the city of Glendale in Los Angeles County, and then from 1981 to 2015, I was uh, a firefighter, paramedic, captain, and investigator with the Long Beach Fire Department. And today, I'm still in public service as a reserve deputy here in Orange County, California. So law enforcement came back into my life. Full circle. Yeah.
2: That's, that's pretty, pretty um, fascinating how all that happened. So tell us a little bit more about the Long Beach Fire Department specifically and what it offers in fire protection and service to its citizens.
0: Long Beach Fire Department is a fire department. It's a miniature Los Angeles. The city of Long Beach is, just think of it as a miniature Los Angeles. It is one and two in port traffic in the world. Uh, it has high rise buildings it has lower economical depressed areas it has very wealthy areas it has high crime in many areas low crime it has a city services that are just phenomenal from the fire department which is including the EMS division paramedics uh fire prevention fire inspections hazardous materials um the fire investigations unit which i headed It also has a phenomenal police department. Uh, The men and women of the Long Beach Police Department are phenomenal. And uh, the services in Long Beach from whether it's the fire department, the water department, or the hospitals, such as uh, Long Beach Memorial and St. Mary's, which are two trauma centers that are located basically one mile apart. Uh, And right there with Long Beach Memorial is a very nice little hospital for children called Miller Children's Hospital. Uh, Very... uh, some of the the greatest perf- medical professions professionals that work there with nothing but the uh, safety and well being of the citizens that come in from all over the world uh, for treatment. So, uh, as for the Long Beach firefighters, uh, the greatest in the world. I love them. Um, I write about them in the book. Uh, yes, we were a little arrogant, but I'm here to tell you that with that arrogance. <laughs> We could back it up and they would back it up at any second and uh, just to ask them. They'll tell you. But they're uh, they're a group, a group of professionals, including the police department, that when it's time to do the job, uh, there are no none better.
1: Well, great. We're going to dive deep into your PTSD story. And uh, what's amazing is that there are a lot of books out there on PTSD, but not really so many on a personal struggle, um, through the dark part of it. And then actually, um, onto the, you know, the other side of it. And, uh, and I'm going to let Kim start to guide you into telling that story because it's, uh, I think it's phenomenal.
2: Yeah. Th- thank you for that, David. So there are, Pat, there's dozens of books written about PTSD. Why did you write your book, the reality of PTSD when children die?
0: Well, the book itself was 13 years in the making. The I think the 13th anniversary of the fire is coming up this December. But um, I wanted to profile my struggle and the truth about what I felt as a first responder dealing with this incident. I had read uh, many books and looked at many books or heard many lectures on kind of the clinical, clean type of psychology that goes along with people that talk about, uh, first responder issues. I wasn't hearing it so much from first responders. It was more of a clinical nature where I, first of all, I didn't think I'm the one that experienced this stuff and what I wrote in the book, um, about my personal struggle and my personal, you know, this, this journey that I take, uh, once I began to tell the story, the confirmation came when people would come up to me after my presentation saying, thank you for telling your story because you told my story also. You told things in your story about the exact same thing I thought about also. And that was very refreshing to know that what I was experiencing, what it did was it also confirmed that I was not alone in my struggle because I felt very much alone and I was very embarrassed to ever say anything And I was embarrassed to say anything to my wife, uh, who is upstairs right now.
2: So Pat, oh my goodness, there's so many things we wanna talk to you about and um, explore. Before we go further into the the PTSD specifically, will you tell everyone, what, just in a nutshell, what was the accident that took place that led you to experiencing the PTSD?
0: Sure. On uh, December 14th of 2007, a very tragic fire occurred at the rear of an address at the corner of 10th Street and Martin Luther King Avenue in the city of Long Beach. And the firefighters that arrived there were faced with a fully involved structure uh, with three children that were trapped. It was very clear from the, from the time they arrived that the children were trapped inside. Um, they went in there, uh, and they found each one of the girls, w- which are Jasmine, Stephanie, and Jocelyn Uh There they are right there. That's uh, Jasmine on the left, Stephanie in the middle, and Jocelyn the, on the right. But the uh, location turned out to be an illegally converted garage. And in America today, there is a tremendous problem with, with housing, uh, first of all, there's not enough housing. And second of all, housing the housing that we do have, in many respects is unsafe. So where they happened to be spending the night because they didn't live there, they were actually just spending the night with their aunt, uh, which was who, who was seventeen years old, a very responsible young lady. Um, the problem with this location because it was an illegally converted garage was there was no heat. So the girls uh, knew that, and they brought with them a little heater, which was a, uh, an electric heater that they were really excited to have to keep warm, but it ended up causing the fire that would take their lives also.
2: <sighs> so now let's talk about, um, thank you for sharing that. So this was clearly a very tragic accident. And I also know this was not your your first incident where someone had died, where a child had died. You'd been doing this for decades and this particular incident affected you differently than all the others. Will you start to share with us, what, what did you start experiencing that was different from other incidents?
0: Well, one of the first things, it, it was very clear when I was responding to the scene that night, uh that the the dispatcher certainly had updated me on what was going on um i also had another investigator a very smart investigator who was also uh, he arrived at the scene prior to my uh, my arrival um he said that it was you know we had two kids that had already passed away one was on life support and it is just a very chaotic scene um what so that so the girls were not there when i got there they were all in the hospital and i did not uh, see them in the hospitals i had another investigator a third investigator that i called in who actually went and uh, he did the investigations at the hospital which included uh, photographs and recovering any clothes that would potentially be used as evidence in case the uh, incident was criminal because we had no idea what had happened um one of my investigators who arrived prior to me, we had met and discussed a strategy. We had our police detectives in there and they ended up interviewing our survivor pretty pretty quickly. And she gave us this indication of, the, uh, of this heater might've caused this fire. So during our investigation, which included a full, we call it a dig out of the location, we were able to find this heater and using what we call a systematic approach and a scientific method uh we concluded and it wasn't we we held our cards for a while because we had to make sure we had everything in line uh, that the fire would end up being caused by that little heater that would have been our logical ignition source um where the so even though it was very emotional at the scene, I didn't, the girls were not there. So because it was, there was a lockdown perimeter, the police were providing security. I was not interacting with family members at that time. We were, we needed to find out what caused the fire. We needed to go through the location. Um, I contacted the, our fire prevention unit and the Long Beach Police, or the Long Beach Building Department to come out and conduct their investigation. And they, Determined very quickly of multiple uh, violations of city building codes, fire codes that were that were complete that completely contributed to this problem. Uh, that's the actual structure you're seeing, which is the two where the lines are. It's two of the four car garages were just simply nailed shut. Drywall was put in on the other side of those garage doors, and then you had this oddball addition to the structure. Which happened to be a closet. I'm not sure you can see it, but on the very left side, you you don't see very you don't see any big windows in there. And by code, there should have been a, a window big enough for a firefighter to get into, and a uh, a person to get out of. The problem with this was the only window that the kids could have escaped was just a little tiny bathroom window that was actually placed inside the closet about six, almost seven feet off the ground. So uh, once the fire started, uh, that's where they were sleeping, by the way. Um, They were uh, completely trapped in that, in that room.
2: And so at what point did you notice you started to respond and feel differently about this incident than others?
0: Well, it certainly was a sad incident. I was getting you know, information from our dispatchers and the police officers and the conditions of the kids. But it wasn't until the survivor of the fire who came back, who was just a, a, a really nice young lady who came back. She lived there with her mother. And her other sister, whose name is Blanca, uh, her mother happened to go to work that night. Her sister Blanca had gone to spend the night with a friend. So the reason the girls were there is because their mother had to go and do some community service in the morning for having a suspended license. Well, she was responsible and she wanted to make sure that she could get out of the house the following morning and her sister would n- naturally take care of the girls. They liked going over there, and there would never be a problem, right? So, in talking, we finally got the survivor of the fire back to the back to the scene, and um, it was clear that her entire life had uh, imploded. There was no question about it. It was very sad to see the uh, to see the the her reaction to what had happened. Um, but what we found, um, we found earlier in our investigation, we, we started to find some uh, oxygen cylinders for medical oxygen. And one of the first things as firefighters and paramedics that we think about is usually people with COPD or chronic, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, like emphysema, have home oxygen. Uh, what she would tell us about, so, so I actually asked her, I go, well, where is, who is the older person that has this oxygen? Where are they? And she said, well, there is no older person. that oxygen is for my sister. And I said, well, what's wrong with her? Well, uh, she then explains to me uh, that her sister um, Blanca uh, is dying of cystic fibrosis, uh, a very tragedy a very tragic childhood disease that there's no cure for. Um, and she had basically come home in the last days of her life to spend it there where she would, um, where she was supposed to live out the the last days of her, of her life. And it was at that point where this tragedy takes a turn that I was not expecting because not only was there two deaths already, uh, with one child on life support, but there was another death that was certainly going to come, and uh, I don't—I I certainly didn't expect that to happen. And uh, 37 days later, Blanca would pass away.
2: And she was just a teenager, correct?
0: She was 19. She uh, she had uh, cystic fibrosis. I think she was diagnosed at uh, at one years old, and she wow. would spend the rest of her life. Living in and out of Miller Children's Hospital at uh, Long Beach Memorial at the Memorial Medical Center, Um, and that's why I give such props to the to the doctors and the nurses at that hospital.
2: So, really, sounds like tragedy upon tragedy, Um, just really compiling to then what I what you experienced. And will you share some of the signs and symptoms of PTSD that you? Sure.
0: I think I need to go just one step farther. We need to go one day into the future uh, after this incident um, because uh, the following day was the, uh, was the autopsies of our victims, Jasmine and uh, Stephanie. Um, I had been to probably 35 or 40 autopsies at that point. I had been to a number of child autopsies and These are just, these are part of investigations that you just have to be part of. Society has no idea what police officers and detectives go through, and the men and women of the coroner or the medical examiner go through to find answers for family members. Uh, So I went there with my partner, um, dressed out, and when I walked into the room, I, for the very first time in my life, basically froze and i could not believe what i saw uh on the other end of the room which was uh, jasmine and her little sister stephanie uh laying there um it was just something that was i had never been exposed to i that the i'd never been exposed to that much sadness in such a short period of time Okay. And within minutes, my phone rang and kind of snapped me out of this funk I was in. And I went out to answer the phone. And it was a, it was a nurse from uh, the burn unit where their other sister uh, Jocelyn was. And she told me that Jocelyn had just passed away. So that w- immediately told me that uh, she would be joining her sisters at the corners. and that's really how this journey into darkness uh, started within uh, about a 24 hour period. And then it just kept going.
2: From reading the book, I do recall you highlighted a lot of people around you um, Really feeling that grief, the the nurses at the hospital, of course the other firefighters, and it almost sounded like everyone you came into contact there was this overwhelming sense of grief um, and for it to happen everything to happen in such a short amount of time you know the next day you're already uh, I believe it was the next day you were already doing the autopsies you just said correct
0: the following morning yes, but uh, basically yeah. 24 hours later we were at the LA county coroner's office.
3: I on 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. Well, you know, nobody calls them because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we
0: started this.
2: So it's pretty much taboo.
0: Take care of the people next to you
2: first responders really being open about what they're struggling with. If we know that let's raise awareness
0: brings you together to talk about it. And it tells you
3: you're not alone.
2: So the way you describe it in the book is it sounds like this grief just really took things to a whole new level for you. And you started to have some experiences that you've never had before. Um, Knowing that PTSD is something that uh, catches people off guard, that it can be an experience that uh, takes things to a whole new level and yet can still be something that people would rationalize. Right. It's oh, oh, no, I'm OK. I'm not really affected by it. Um, or, or maybe I'm making this up and it's not really as bad as, as I think it is. Will you start to tell us some of the the thought process you were going through as you were experiencing yourself immersed in all this grief?
0: Well, sure. And you got to remember that at the same time, I still had, my team still had the investigation to complete. There were people asking for answers and they wanted answers. I had a family that needed answers. Um, So trying to get the reports done, trying to get uh, lab results, evidence examined, um, discussing the cause of the fire, making sure we were correct. All of that had to happen. And then you had this tragedy within the tragedy that was was getting worse by the day. This was, was, this was Blanca. Um, at first, the mother of the, of the kids, Daisy, uh, she did not want to talk to me. She wanted nothing to do with me. She said basically talk to my lawyer. Um, but to her credit, uh, eventually we did talk, and she told me about some things that become very key in the investigation, uh, such as the sleeping habits of her daughters, the sleeping positions of her daughters. And with those in mind, we were able to clearly show that with the chemicals that they ingested, the deadly fire gases, that they never knew what happened. It was crystal clear after that that they never knew what happened. But to answer your question, um, you just start to become immersed in this sadness. Why did this happen? and it's over and over and over. Why did this happen? And you start thinking about it. You can't get it out of your head. You're still doing the investigation, so it's not going away. And it just gets worse from there. And then 37 days later, when Blanca passes away, it's almost like it's the crescendo. And even though I had a beautiful wife to come home to and a a very nice home I just was, I didn't want to say anything. I didn't know what to say. And I felt like I was all alone. I started to fantasize about the engine, the engine 10 could be right around the corner. They were gonna, they they got the kids, they were fine. Everything was gonna be good. And then that wasn't, then it became, I'm just gonna create a fantasy where they're just, everything's fine and they're just my kids. And none of this ever happened. And it's now I'm of, ma- now I'm of, making that now I'm making up a scenario in my own head to make everything better, and in reality, it's making everything worse. So that's how that's how it went down. Um, it I sounds like
1: it sounds oh, like you you've had a major caseload. Um, just one in, this investigation on its own was a huge undertaking. Um, How much did work play a part in masking the thought that there was something else going on? Like, were you finding yourself focused entirely on work or were there other things that were coming in and out of your focus?
0: You know, I did focus a lot on work. I focused uh, a lot on investigations, on getting my tasks done. I I liked being on call. I liked going on calls. Mm -hmm. It was just a way to occupy my time the more i was in the in the field working with the police department or working on investigations i just it just occupied my time but at the same at the exact same time uh the girls were always there Uh, they were there when i was testifying in court they were there when i was driving home they were there when i was talking to my wife they were they have always been there and that was just very hard to you know it's just became part of my life. Hmm.
1: We're going to take a quick break and continue this conversation and, and learn more about uh, Pat's journey through PTSD and actually how he was able to uh, get on the other side of it in just a minute.
3: Our mission at Responder Wellness, Inc. is to subsidize or provide free of charge safety equipment and wellness services to first responders, including police officers, firefighters, EMS personnel, and 911 operators throughout Connecticut. Resources include scholarships to train new EMTs, a responder and veteran-only AA group in Danbury, Connecticut, as well as police vests, a fire and EMS boot programs Program, yoga classes, gym memberships, and T-shirts. The founder of Responder Wellness Inc. co-leads a peer support group sponsored by Fairfield County Trauma Response Team. Responder Wellness Inc. is a nonprofit 501c3. Find us on the web at responderwellness.org, on Facebook at Responder Wellness, Inc., or email us responderwellness@gmail.com. Responder Wellness, Inc. Putting Responders First.
1: We're going to continue the conversation and the story with Kim O'Neill and retired Captain Investigator Pat Wills.
0: Thanks, sir.
2: <laughs> Pat, uh, so it, it became about three years that you were dealing with this profound grief. And I'd love for you to start to share with us more about how did you find someone who was going to be able to help you?
0: Well, it, the, grief did, the, the grief became overwhelming. It, it really did. It, it was something that just occupied my mind 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It did not go away. The Long Beach Fire Department, to their credit, had created a program called, I think it was Critical Incident Stress Debriefing. And actually, they had called for a stress debriefing on the morning of the fire, but that was for the firefighters that responded. Um, Me and my team were still over at the scene. We weren't involved in that. And I was not picking up enough clues during my career to feel that, you know, we probably should be involved in this at some point in this investigation. Um, But where the where my uh, where my story turns will be when in 2010 I have Uh, I have to select two new investigators for the arson unit Uh, and they are required to have in California a post uh, peace officer training and standard background check and psychological evaluation. So uh, Kim will know this. Uh, Her she worked for Dr. Christine Cho at the Long Beach Police Department, who I had only heard of. I didn't know her. I needed to get a hold of her to get psychological evaluations for my two new investigators and uh she happened to call me one day while I was rolling into the fire state or fire headquarters and I was just sitting in a giant parking lot in my Crown Victoria talking and we talked for I don't know 20 30 minutes and she was going to do the she'll do the psychological exams uh she'll make sure she gives me the results and we were going to be fine. so I, I had one thing checked off my list, and then she I, I think I asked her, i go, what well, what what is your role at the police department? Because I didn't really know. And she starts to tell me about uh, what she does in terms of psychological counseling, peer support, and, you know the well-being of the police officers and their families for the city of Long Beach. Well, it was pretty quickly after she said that, that I started to get nervous thinking, you know, it's been a long time since I've been going through this and this might be the one person that could help. And at the very end of our conversation, she said, so anything else going on? And it was at that exact moment that I, I let her rip. And uh, for probably the next hour and a half, She just sat and listened on her end while I told this story about the four girls that had passed away and what I was going through. And she said, congratulations, you have PTSD. And I said, I don't think so, because that's reserved for the military. And she said, well, no, not really. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we should talk again. And uh, I said, yes, we will talk again. And uh, that's how the uh, that's how my healing began. And she assured me that I was not alone in what I was feeling, and that was something that I had not expected to hear. Um, but after listening to what I had told her, she did she did say something that really took me by surprise. She had, she says, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk." Uh, we'll talk next week. And she says, but I have to give you a homework assignment and the homework assignment. If you accept it is, uh, it's up to you. And I'm like, okay, what do I have to do? And she says, the next time we, she says, she says, I want you to think about everything that's happened in the last two and a half years about the Avila's girls, about Blanca, about what you've been feeling. And she says, I want you to make a decision on when you're going to let the girls go. And I thought, wow, um, I hadn't really thought that she would ever ask that question. And I was kind of actually uh, upset that she did. I was a little offended because in my mind, I'd made this relationship with these kids and this fantasy that I'd created about this tragedy to make it better. And uh, in the end, she explained uh, her rationale about why we have to move forward, about why we have to talk about some of the things that uh, make us sad. Um, A couple years earlier, I had taped the picture of the girls to the base of my computer, uh, saying that I would never forget them. and she, at my office, said, are you ready to uh, take that photo down and, and and put it away? And it was time, and, and that's when I reached forward and I plucked it off. Daisy, her, the mother of the girls, had given me that photo, and uh, I wasn't going to forget about them, but I didn't need to think about it the way I'd been thinking about it, and that's how uh, it all uh, it all started. So. And the other thing that was very comforting is when I started to tell this story, the first time I'd ever told this story was at the uh, Orange County Coroner's Office at a seminar for coroner investigators and doctors uh, who were uh, death investigators. And I could barely get through the story, but at the very end, when people came up to me and hugged me and because most of the coroner investigators in California, they're all peace officers, but many said, "You're not alone, brother. I know what you're talking about. I've been there. Uh, your story might be slightly different than my story, but we're on the same we're on the we're in the same place, and you're among friends. And it was it was comforting to know that uh, I wasn't alone. And
2: yeah.
0: it also took a little while, but my one of my partners who was at the scene that day he also, uh, talked about how the incident had upset him. And, uh, what I remember about that was, and I, and I wrote this in my book was that we were in the same office passing back and forth, talking all the time, yet we never really shared our secrets that were the same. So, uh, that's how it, that's how it all uh, started to, uh, get into a different chapter and move forward.
2: Now I know meeting Dr. Cho was a first step and I I love knowing that that took place, of course, for your healing. And it was a long journey. Will you share with us now, I want to kind of jump ahead. Will you share with us now, where are you on your healing journey today?
0: Well, I'm obviously much better. I've, I've retired. Um, I have a wonderful wife and a wonderful family, uh, that, uh, I can't, you know, live life without my wife, Susan. She's just the greatest. Um, Part of my healing journey comes from next door uh, with a little dog named Atticus. And uh, that is Atticus. Uh, Atticus was a puggle who during the, uh, you know, couple of years into my and ins- my issues uh, I would, he, he came to live next door and uh, he would, that's him sleeping in the backyard right next to, outside my master bedroom. And I would hear him snoring and talking in his sleep. And I would become jealous of him that I wanted to sleep like that. Well, long story short is Atticus and I became very good friends and he stayed at my house many, many, many times. Uh, my next door neighbors, Mark and Megan, uh, started a family and we got to know their children, which, you know, for my wife and I are not parents, but, uh, we are very protective of those little kids and we love them to death. And, uh, I am very eternally grateful for them sharing that little dog with us and, uh, helping me through my, uh, tough times.
3: That was a fun part of the book.
0: Yeah. My wife used to say, why don't you go get your little buddy and just go to the park? Uh, So, and I did, and we, we did it many, many times. So yes, many people have said they love, they like that part of the book. So
2: Pat, there's an excerpt from your book. I want to share with everyone because I think it's so pivotal to this conversation. Towards the end of the book, you wrote, getting diagnosed with PTSD was a hard pill to swallow. I became upset with myself, thinking I had created a stain on my career, reflecting I could not handle the streets. That is how naive I was to the hidden perils of my job and the mental health aspect that went along with it. Now that it's been nearly 14 years, you know, how do you, will you just elaborate on that? Share more about your thoughts on PTSD and really embracing that there is a mental health component to a first responder job.
0: Well, there is, there absolutely is. Um, Well, my mentors in the fire service were from World War II, the Vietnam War, and the Korean War. Um, Those were the eras where nothing was said. It's just that simple. Uh, Today, the advent of mental health care for for first responders and dispatchers, which is equally important. Um, uh, There's also the advent of peer support where your fellow firefighters, police officers, first responders, or where, whatever profession you're in, your coworker, uh, they, they have your secret. You can talk to them. And it is now becoming mainstream where mental health is being taught right there in the academy. That was never part of my fire service or law enforcement career. Today, it is. So, if I was to turn back the clock to my uh, situation with the Avila's girls, uh, I would say that uh, having a mental health professional come into the office and discuss what we were exposed to would have been something that would have benefited all of us, certainly me and it may never have uh, allowed me to go where I went and uh you know it's it's just part of being a first responder the other thing about. You also, as a first responder this happened 36 years into my career. I thought I was bulletproof, um, but as a first responder, there is a mental toughness that you have to have. It's if you, right. if you're not going to handle this job well, uh, then it's not for you. Um, most people do very well in the job, uh, but I realized also that. My reaction was just a little tiny part of public service. It went down to all the people that worked at the fire department, to the, to the crime lab that photographed the crime scene, to the building inspectors that were, although they didn't see the girls, they certainly knew the story. It affected all of them. The secretaries that would handle the reports, the dispatchers that took the 911 calls, the doctors and nurses and the medical people that treated the kids, and then the coroner investigators, it just never ended. And I felt that in my book, I had to call all of them out to be, so that everybody understood that how big this team really is. We as first responders, firefighters and police, the guys wearing the uniforms, the girls wearing the uniforms, we get all the credit. And we we do not deserve all the credit. There is a whole layer of people behind us that make the entire system run that we never ever mention and they had to be mentioned in my book
2: and I have to just say that that p- aspect alone it was obvious from the very beginning of the book and then you weaved it all throughout how much you recognize everyone for the role that they play and uh, it just it was very heartwarming. And I just want to say thank you. Certainly first responders play a huge role in all of it. And thank you to you guys. And as someone who has experience from being behind the scenes in the office, some form of support role, I just want to say thank you. And so anybody who's wanting to read Pat's book, I mean, there is no fire versus PD. There is no civilian versus sworn. It is a book where he does a fantastic job of of truly recognizing and appreciating everyone. So Yeah. Good job, Pat.
1: Pat, um, I agree. The book was great. I enjoyed reading it, um, both because it was technical and I learned a lot about how Long Beach Fire operates and how your investigative unit operated and how you did your investigation. Um, And there was another uplifting part of this story, which I'd uh, you to talk about. And it had to do with, um, it came out of this illegally converted um, garage and the fact that it was a proliferation of those in Long Beach. So tell us a little bit about what you were able to do to make a make a change in that direction.
0: Well, to the credit of the city of Long Beach, from all of the city council, all of the upper management, the city manager, um, a very smart city attorney who unfortunately remains nameless in the book, uh, gets credit for creating the Avila's law. Um, I always felt that we had to go to Sacramento and create a law or create a law with the city attorney and we had to have more teeth. Well, in, in retrospect, we already had the teeth, we already had the laws. So what happened was all of the laws that were had to do with illegally converted garages or unsafe housing were then named as the Avila's law uh, dedicated to Jasmine, Stephanie, and Jocelyn Avila's and this tragic incident. And, and what the city of Long Beach could show any property owners, look, you might have the, you, I know you're upset with us fining you for, uh, telling you that you can't convert your garage without permits. But this tragedy happened in 2007, and we don't want it to happen again. Uh, The city of Long Beach then sent that, uh, referred it to the state of California for a concurring resolution with the state Senate and the Assembly. And what they did was, this is not signed by the governor, it's signed by both houses, that they uh, encouraged all cities in the state of California who had laws relating to illegal garages or unsafe housing that they would have those laws named after the long beach of vilas law to show their citizens of just how just what such tragedy can happen if uh if they don't if they don't enforce their laws and uh it was uh it was very sobering for my wife and i to be there at the california assembly when they called me on to the to the floor of the assembly (laughs) and they read the proclamation with Jasmine, Stephanie, and Jocelyn's name being read into the record of the state of California. And they recognized the Long Beach Fire Department and all the men and women who did what they do day in and day out. And uh, it was just an unbelievable uh, experience. So uh, I also write in my book that My next stop is the White House. So if there's any political people out there, I would like to name December 14th of every year as National Safe Housing Day in honor of the girls that passed away, but dedicated to every person in America that they deserve a safe house, a safe place to live. So that's my next quest. It's an admirable one,
1: Pat. Um, we'll get into uh, a little more about fire safety in a minute, but please share with the audience uh, a little more about your book. Where can they find it, and what forms does it come in?
0: Well, my book is available on Amazon. It also has a, an ebook, so you can uh, use it with a Kindle reader or a, or a reader. Uh, I'm in the process of creating a audio book, so just. Go to Amazon. Uh, the reality of PTSD when children die, and uh, you can buy the Kindle version or the or the print version. The print, the Kindle version has the color pictures. The the print version has the it's black and white. But if if uh, if I see you, I will sign your book. So fantastic!
1: <laughs> Please tell us where people can find you and some of the other events and projects you're working on.
0: Patrick wills.com. That's my website. Um, and also, uh, in my book, I explain that, uh, part of my, uh, healing was physical fitness prior to the, uh, incident, I was pretty good in physical fitness, but I now, uh, go all over the United States doing stair climbing and, uh, stair climbing for the American lung association and cystic fibrosis. Uh, there is a stair climb this December, It's called Hike the Halo. See if I can get it up here for you. Um, It's Hike the Halo. Uh, It is December 18th of 2021. In Orange County, it is going to be at Angel Stadium. So you can go on the, just Google Hike the Halo. I'll be creating Blanca's Climbers. So you can come climb with us or climb virtually but these events are all over the United States. Usually December is the cystic fibrosis has those events. Um, So if you can't make uh, the hike, the halo event, it'll be uh, probably in a city, a major city near you. Uh, It'll be all over the United States. sounds like a great event. Um, And do you have any words you want to share with uh, the
1: responder community about fire safety?
0: Well, sure. It's uh, Daylight savings times just changed over and we change our smoke detectors and we always have our escape plan. So it's good to be uh, diligent on those items and uh, just uh, be aware of your surroundings. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are less fortunate than others and uh, keep them in your mind and keep them in your prayers and your mind.
1: This has been an amazing Conversation. We so appreciate you sharing this personal journey you've had. And I think it's going to be really helpful to people who need to hear that there is hope that we can. Uh, the, the stigma of asking for help in these situations is unfounded, that it's so important to find someone, um, a mental health professional or wherever it is that's going to help you through it. This has been huge to have you be here with us and share this, and I really appreciate
0: it. Well, I appreciate you for having me, and I'm glad to see my old friend, Kim, who saw me many times go through the door of Dr. Cho's office and close the door behind me. So um, it's been great. And uh, to the first responder community and anybody that's watching, uh, mental health is uh, something that we all have to be aware of, no matter what our profession is. And uh, in terms of uh, taking care of each other, we have to. If you have the ability to have a little dog like Atticus to love you and, you know, shower you with hair and you'll love it. Um, yes. I just wanted to say uh, to my fellow Long Beach firefighters and police officers and my deputies from Orange County Sheriff's, uh, do what you're doing. Keep up the good work.
1: Well, Roger to that and Kim. Thank you so much for being Thank here, you. being a, a guest co-host. Uh, amazing job, and uh, just love you know your your questions and your your insight into uh, our topic tonight was uh, was wonderful. So thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you, for Kim. Reminding. Thank you, Pat. Thanks, Kim. Oh,
1: you're welcome.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks, so,
1: Dave. Yeah. So please uh, subscribe on YouTube, Responder Resilience, on uh, Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc. Uh, and like to remind everyone to stay safe and take care of yourself.